I would love to have you take your Bibles, if you have one handy, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2 is where we'll be here shortly. And the sermon notes in your bulletin are also especially helpful to you. Now, you will notice in your bulletin as well, not only the sermon notes, but also a flyer entitled Sunset Bible Church Statement of Faith. This is a document we've been working on for a couple years. It is not to replace. Uh, The full doctrinal statement is presented in our church constitution, but we've been kind of working on a a smaller summary that's, that's less theologically written and a little more accessible and more easily adjusted, uh, meaning sometimes there are things we want to speak to going on in our culture, and rather than having a whole meeting and it change the Constitution for that, we've just been looking at kind of a summary statement and a, a document that we would ask all of our teachers and key leaders to, to actually sign uh, in this day of theological shift away from orthodoxy. We see a, a great value in, in this. So I'll, I'll give that to you to read. Uh, sometime later with a cup of coffee and reflect on what you find there. And uh, so with that, then, we'll turn to our sermon notes and uh, get us going with where we want to go this morning. We have a full morning, all kinds of stuff we get to talk about, and um, it is a bit daunting to me when I think about the amount of stuff I have in front of me here on this, on this podium. But it's good to have you here, and I'm glad that you've come and uh, really grateful. If you look at your sermon notes, you'll see under the element of review that we are now in week seven of our 10-week summer preaching series entitled, We Believe. And we are uh, thinking through 10 key areas of biblical truth and inviting you to open your Bibles and let's look at them together. So we'll continue that, of course, today. Now, our, our title then, as you have, have heard and see there in your notes, We Believe in Salvation by Grace through faith alone. And I'm going to be pressing on that. Now, I realize you may look at that. If you've been a church-going person for a while, you might look at that and say, well, nothing new here. Um, Heard that since the time I was a kid. Well, hang on to that if you would. Okay, I'll tell you why. Many times in church life, as in popular culture, terms are used and thrown around, sometimes casually, often with different meanings attached, depending on who is speaking. People will speak about grace or faith or things like this and might use the same terms and mean something different. And I want to press on some things, perhaps uh, with some precision, hopefully, um, but I think you'll understand as we go along. Even if you have heard these things and these topics and phrases for your lifetime, I would urge you to, to not tune out. Stick around. I might stir something up today that would clarify a position that you thought you held or maybe you were pretty sure you didn't. Uh, There are a number of areas where I'm going to say things about precision, about where I stand on some of these areas theologically. Uh, Wonderful. And that may provoke your thought as well. Salvation by grace through faith alone. That's our topic. Now, our Sunset Bible Church doctrinal statement here, to give context, says this, we believe that salvation is the gift of God brought to mankind by grace and received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins. That's what is written in our church doctrinal statement in the Constitution. Good place to to begin. I would like to pray for us, and then we will jump on this, all right? So away we go. Pray with me, please, if you will. Our Father, it is with great joy always that we open the Word of God together here, finding uh, the authority that comes from you. Thus says the Lord, we are not the authority, but it is in the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God that we, we, we find our home and we find our hearts rest, and here we find truth about what it means to know you and love you and relate to you and how to be with you forever. And so I pray for this hour that you would help us to hear from the word of God and that the spirit of God would would so move in our hearts that we, each of us, those present in the room, those listening elsewhere or listening later, would would find a resonance in their heart, either affirming faith already existing or maybe some for the first time today saying, yes, I'm gonna trust Christ 
Christ alone is my Savior from sin today, even today. Our Father, do your work among us. It is yours to do, and we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we step into Ephesians 2, following the pattern that we have been following this summer, uh, this is a theologically driven sermon series, and so we're giving you some theological terms, and so today, a lesson in Okay, there it is. Soteriology. You've been getting a lot of ologies over the summer months, and if you uh, have tracked with some of that, you've been been hearing some new things. Soteriology. Uh, Ology, of course, the study of. Soteria, Greek word, uh, speaking of being saved. So uh, the study of of what it means to, to, to be saved, to be forgiven by God for our sins. Soteriology. Answering, I suppose, the question, as I have here, answered by, asked by one of Job's friends of old, how then can a man be right before God? Which, of course, is the, is the greatest question to be asked. All of us know that we are here on this earth for a temporary time. If you hadn't figured that out yet, well, <laughs> uh, read the paper. You'll find some obituaries. Your name not there means you're still here, but there will be a day. And uh, how can we be right before God? How can we be prepared for the day that we are done here and our eyes open in eternity? There can be no greater question because, frankly, we'll be there longer than we're here. Uh, so, so how can we be right before God? The greatest question of all time. I've been introducing you to a, a number of books, and I'll do that again along the way today. Uh, one big theology book, not for everybody, but if you like to study theology, uh, Millard Erickson's um, cool book called, amazingly, Christian Theology. Uh, This is a a book that I used in my seminary time. It's still around. And I I bring it out because some of you have been wanting to order it and things like that. Wonderful. I always encourage our church family to pursue theological study, if that's you. Uh, Some of you would rather do other stuff. I get it. But if you're at a place in your life where you say, I wouldn't mind pressing into that a bit. And um, maybe the next calendar year, I'm going to read 1,200 pages. Maybe so. Maybe you should. Well, if you do, in this one, uh, you'll find seven chapters on salvation. Can you imagine? 140 pages. And I'm just going to tell you some of the stuff you might learn just to whet your appetite. Are you right? Here we go. So, see, concepts of salvation. All right, what does that mean, in other words? The antecedent to salvation. Uh, In other words, should we talk about the word called predestination? Well, you should talk about it. So, here you go. You could. Chapter 44, the beginning of salvation, subjective aspects. This is what you'll learn, effectual calling, the order of salvation, ordo salutis, conversion. What does that mean? Regeneration, the beginning of salvation. What does it mean to be united with Christ? Oh my goodness sakes, the continuation of salvation, sanctification. What is that? How do you live the Christian life? The completion of salvation, perseverance, glorification. Then finally, the means and extent. Views of the means, the different views of what it means. The extent of salvation. Well, you could do that in 140 pages and think about some of the greatest things people have ever thought about. How can a person be right before God? That's kind of what we're talking about today. So I give you this. Now, on your sermon notes, key questions that should be included in this conversation. I give you three. One, from what am I saved? That is, what's the problem here? (laughs) Well, Before we leave today, you'll have heard that. From what am I saved? Second, by what or by whom am I saved? By what, if it means I work hard for it. By whom, if it's to be Christ? What's the solution, in other words, to my problem, if there is one? Third, to what am I saved? What is the result or outcome of this business of salvation? So from what, by whom, and to what I think are three really good questions that help us frame our conversation today. Now, as you notice, the Protestant Reformation would answer these questions using the five solas. Richard made reference to this a few moments ago. Uh, The Protestant Reformation, of course, celebrated heavily five years ago, 2017, on that 500th anniversary of the kind of the one of the sparks of the Protestant Reformation, which, of course, that was the uh, 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, inviting discussion on key theological points. But the Protestant Reformation ended up with these 
five talking points, five uh, summaries. They didn't come up with these, but rather they had been around in faith for years, but they summarized and codified them by grace alone, through faith alone, on the authority of scripture alone, through the work of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And the alones would be like the sola, you understand, if you understand your terms. So five solas, five alones, or five onlys. Uh, A couple of years ago when I was in, uh, on the continent of Europe to participate in the European Leadership Forum, I stopped by the Models, and they took me on a, on a trip to a couple of places, inclu- including Worms, or Worms, if you want to just say it like good English people do, in Germany, which is where Luther stood and famously defended himself in front of a group of people. And there, in this German country, uh, city there, you have flags on the, on the, on the streets, you know those decorative flags with the five solas of the Reformation right down Main Street. Can you imagine going to any town in America and finding the five solas of the Reformation remembered in flags down the street? Usually we have other flags, but the five solas of the Reformation, my goodness sakes, how amazing is that? Granted, they're not all listening to those, but they at least remember that it was there that those five solas were put to the test. Now, On those five solas, again, I like to recommend books because many of you are readers, and I think you should love the Lord your God with all your mind, all the rest as well, heart, soul, strength, and mind is part of that. Um, Here's a book that discusses those five solas. It's called Biblical Authority After Babel, uh, Kevin Van Hooser. Uh, and it's discussing those five solas. It was written in 2016 as a, a preparation for 2017, the 500th anniversary. So that's kind of a fun book. It looks at the five solas of the Reformation and presses into them a bit. What is that about? Another one that I think, even if you don't like history, can't imagine that. But, but if there are such people, uh, this is a very accessible book called Rescuing the Gospel. Again, looking at the Protestant Reformation. It's written by Erwin Lutzer, wonderful writer. And he's just talking about what was the big ruckus? Should we just get over it already? And um, what is this topic? So Rescuing the Gospel, I would commend to you as well. It's a good read. Okay, enough on that for the, for the moment here. So I want to come then to the text in front of you. If you have your Bible open to Ephesians 2, you can see in your sermon notes the two headings that I want to address. And I'm going to do so at some length, even on the first. And so I'm going to read them separately from one another. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and then we will thoroughly discuss it. And then we will read 4 through 10, and I trust thoroughly discuss that as well. Uh, Along the way, I'm going to do some reading from another book that I have not mentioned yet. Uh, But but this is significant. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and you see my heading on your notes. We need saving, and it's worse than you think. All right? That'll cheer you up. But pay attention. You need to hear it. So God's word says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Stop. Now, Paul is doing here in three verses what he takes three full chapters to do in the book of Romans, some of which we'll read in just a couple of moments. And I am going to slow here and beat this drum without apology because of my first bullet point. If we get this wrong, the first part, we will get the second part wrong as well. If you, if you do not understand your sin problem, listen carefully. You will not think much of God's solution, the Savior Jesus. If you think what you have is a, like a theological cold 
that two, taking two pills and, you know, check with me in the morning, if you think that's what you need, a little help from God, a little boost, a little affirmation of your self-esteem, if you think that's your problem, you will not value God's solution. And you may even think you are saved. And frankly, you won't even know that you're lost. So I, I need you here to pay close attention. So verse one then, the text describes our problem as dead in trespasses and sins. Do you hear this? It does not say that you are merely sick. No, it's worse than that. Affected by sin, infected by sin. Bad examples, needing education, a little better self-esteem, people say. A little more money, that's what the world needs. You know, if we just gave everybody around the world a better education, a hand up, the world would be a better place. Oh, really? Oh, really? Read the Bible, please. I, I, I'm going to press on this, as I say, for a moment. Uh, here's another book. This is called Grace Alone. This is one book in a five-part series. You'd never guess what the five books are covering. Yeah, it's the five solas of the Reformation, one book on each. So this is part of that series, each one written by a different theologian. This is written by uh, Carl Truman. Some of you were introduced to him in some recent reading in some of our adult education classes. Grace alone, salvation as a gift of God, what the Reformation taught, and why it still matters. I'm going to read, without apology, a number of quotations, and it's on this. What does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? What is our problem? So in the introduction, the foreword, uh, the, the writer of the foreword, R. Kent Hughes, quotes a, a later part of the book, but I, I bring it here first to you. So he says this, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. Do you find that jolting? Perhaps you should. Rebellion against God. Oh, we say, oh, please, I've never rebelled against God. Oh, a few mistakes here and there. I'm Irish, got a temper, but it's not like against God. I come by it naturally. Um, and besides, this and this and this, it's kind of just the way I am. I have personality quirks. Or okay, some would say flaws, but I'm not, what do we say? I'm not that bad. Mm. Sin is rebellion against God. And when, when he says biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response, well, first, the writer is looking historically into the Old Testament and the need for things that offend modern sensibilities, blood sacrifices to cover your offenses against God. The, the animal sacrifices of old, that if you were to stand in the temple and see all these fuzzy little woolly lambs, you just want to take them home, and they will shed their blood to cover your sin until the day that the great and final sacrifice would come, Jesus, who would pay for your sin. Those animal sacrifices, the writer to Hebrews would say, did not pay for sin. Blood of bulls and goats could never pay for sin. Covered it, yes, covered it, until Christ would come and once and for all pay for sin for all time. But, but the blood sacrifice, and then you look at the cross, the awfulness of the death of Jesus. How can you look there and think that your problem before God is you have some kind of a, a spiritual cold? No, the Bible says more than that. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. So I read some additional items here that I have, I have marked. Truman says this, one's understanding of sin inevitably shapes one's understanding of grace. One's understanding of grace will, will reveal what one thinks about sin when we fully appreciate the destructive and pervasive effects of the fall, we more clearly recognize the need for grace to address our fundamental problem. 
He goes on across the page. The world is not as it should be. That's why God is gracious. It's because after the fall, we are in rebellion against him. Do you hear these terms? We are in rebellion. And your grandmother, by the way, bless her heart. This isn't just you or me. We are in rebellion against God because of the sinful nature. Because of this, he acts in the face of rebellion. We have chosen death, so he sends his son to die in our place. A couple more. If one believes that humanity's problem is simply ignorance in how to live, then we can assume that grace is an education to alleviate such ignorance. If our human problem is simply moral ignorance and grace is moral revelation, the Christian life will consist of men and women being obedient in their own strength to to a revealed moral code. And then once more, he speaks of this. I'll comment on more fully in a moment. Um, To have sinned in Adam, I'll explain it, is not simply to have followed a bad example. It is to be subject to a fundamental change in the relationship, the human relationship to God and self. Okay, I'm going to stop at that point. If you look at the text in front of you, I'm going to go to another phrase. So it begins with, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and then talks about that. And then verse 3 is like a, a summary of this. Uh, so, so he says, I'm after a certain phrase, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature. Do you see this? We're by nature children of wrath, just as, as the rest. What is Paul pressing on here? It's this. Remember in recent weeks, we've been in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and we referenced Romans 5. Remember the part about in Adam? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The idea is this. Oh, please get this. You must know this about yourself and me. Um, when Adam sinned, as the, as the head of the race, we, he, we sinned in him. And so humanity from Adam on down are infected by a sin nature. So I put on your sermon notes, we are not sinners because we sin. Do you get this? This is what many people think, that we are sinners because we sin. Rather, the testimony of Scripture is we sin because we are sinners, this is what David meant in Psalm 51 in that strange phrase when he's, he's confessing sin before God, and he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. He is not speaking of sinfulness relating to procreation. He's saying, no, because I was in Adam, at the point of conception, I was born a sinner, You know those little innocent darlings that you all love on and go, oh, look at that sweet little kid. Yes, I know they are sweet and darling. I love babies as much as you, and they're little sinners. They just are. They are capable of anger for... Some of you as parents know this. Before they can speak, they're capable of sinful anger. When you don't meet their needs, now... Uh huh. No one has to sit a child down and say, okay, after mommy and daddy, the next word you learn is mine. They do this. You did this. No one has to teach a child how to assault another child to get a toy. They do this uh, in our nursery uh, as you drop them off. No, it, it isn't saying, oh, they're awful. That's not the point. By nature, that's what I'm pressing on. By nature, children of wrath, Paul says, dead in trespasses and sins. What ability does a person who has died have to respond? If you say, come on, get up. No response. Ability to respond. No, that that person who has died does not need to turn over a new leaf. He does not need help or assistance. He doesn't need better nutrition. He doesn't need aspirin. He doesn't need a shot in the arm. No, the one who has died needs help, resurrection life from outside himself. And I will tip my theological hand here in some areas. Again, if you study theology, you're theologically aware, you're wanting to know what comes first, the chicken or the egg. 
your faith or the work of God. And I will tip my theological hand and go with Augustine of old and say, God's work came first. If you think it's you first, I would disagree. No, we'll talk about that more in just a couple of moments and I'll alert you to that when we get there. No, what a dead person needs, he must receive or she must receive resurrection life that can only come from the hand of God. Okay, more on this again in just a moment. Resurrection life is exactly what that person needs. I put in your notes here, uh, you know, sometimes I, I recommend books. I've done that already today. Lord of the Flies. Oh my goodness, what an awful book. Nasty book. How many of you have read it? Oh, see, all of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. All of you with your hands up. If you haven't read it, okay, here's kind of a crash course. It's a book on theology, even though it's not a Christian book. It was written in 1954, and it tells the story. It was heavily, heavily repaired. You can read this on Wikipedia, as I did, a great dictionary in the sky. But it was heavily fixed in order to be published. The writer had intended it to go a lot of other places. Um, but it was, anyway, fixed up and overhauled in order to be published. But it tells the story of a group of young boys, prepubescent boys, who airplane crash, they end up on some, some island. And what happens to these little darlings? Think about it. There's no TV to influence them. They're not playing video games. There are no bad examples. Nobody's selling drugs around. The neighborhood is great. It's just a whole bunch of little boys here in this wonderful forest. It's going to be all peace and harmony because that's what human nature is, right? No, it's not. It's tribalism and conflict and, and one over another and false religion and murder. That's what it is. That's what it's a story of. It's stark. It's gripping. It's awful. You don't finish the book and say, wow, I feel, you know, this, is, this edified me. No, it ends in darkness and there's no answer. The answer that's needed is the Christian gospel. It's the story of Jesus. But it's a stark depiction of our by nature children of wrath. Interestingly, here on on Wikipedia, one of the uh, common comments here says this, Lord of the Flies presents a view of humanity unimaginable before the horrors of Nazi Germany, Nazi Europe, and then plunges into speculations about mankind in the state of nature. Bleak and specific, but universal, fusing rage and grief. Lord of the Flies is both a novel of the 1950s and for all time. Yes, it doesn't lead you to Jesus. It leads you to lostness and despair. But it's saying this, please get it. The problem we have isn't external to us. See, how many times do we, even we, say things like this. Somebody, some, one of our little darlings does something they, they shouldn't do. And we say, I know they were hanging out with the wrong crowd. Okay. Maybe they were, but can I just tell you, sorry, folks, your little darling was capable, whatever that was without the wrong crowd. I hear this in some settings. If we can just keep them from being around bad people. I remember during my years as a youth pastor being lobbied by some specific parents to start a different youth group, like two nights because the youth group we had had non-Christian kids coming all the time and said parent wanted to know why I wouldn't start another youth group with only Christian kids. See, what was the idea of that? Well, as I was very clearly told, my child does not ever hang out with anyone who doesn't know Jesus. I thought, hmm, well, okay, I appreciate your goal to raise a little young man or a little lady who knows and loves Jesus, but let me tell you something, your approach stinks. See, because you're assuming that if this child sins, it's somebody else's fault. See, no, sin is not external. It is internal to us by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, I'm I'm going to, as I said, press on this, and I, I mean it, I mentioned already that Paul takes three chapters at the beginning of the book of Romans to make sure we get the point. And I'm going to go to Romans 3, 10 through 19. I'm going to read it in summary of my comments. Don't worry, we're heading toward the, toward the solution. Uh, and neither you nor I want to just wrap it up right now as a sermon and say, okay, go and have a good week. Um, no, fortunately, God does not leave us there either. But Romans 3, starting verse 10 Paul brings to a conclusion his indictment of humanity, and he says this. 
as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I'll pause there for a moment to press on my earlier comment. If you would look back at your life and say, well, I did. Or I am today. I would say to you, yes, and if you are, and if you did, it was because God was already at work. I believe that. And, and you know, even those who would say, they think they disagree with that, I, I, when it comes down to practicalities, you do believe that God goes first, else you would never pray for the salvation of a friend. You're asking God to intervene. Open blind eyes, you, you pray. Why do you pray that if you don't believe it? Okay, no one seeks for God, that is, apart from his drawing them to himself. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I think this would all exclude you. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And we're heading towards summary here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed, stopped. And the whole world may be, the whole world, the whole world. Do you hear this? Believe it. The whole world held accountable to God, that is, before the throne of God. If any were to stand and say, yes, but you don't know the home in which I was raised. You don't know what I was deprived of. You don't know the things. You, 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 how can I be accountable? That in that moment, standing before the throne of God, as the indictment is read, every mouth is closed. The whole world accountable to God. This is, this is what the Bible teaches, folks. Okay? Wow. Now, if you think Paul just has a lousy attitude about people, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and Romans 1, 2, and 3, may I remind you of the prophets? So I remember with you, as I put, I give you the reference here, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Hear the words, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the scripture says. The, the punishment, the chastisement for our sin was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, what is it? The iniquity of us all. Do you hear the words? No, the prophets speak very clearly of the same, the same indictment. Now you say, well, Jesus, surely. Jesus is just going to give us a hug. So I, I pause briefly at Matthew 15. I want you to hear, I want you to hear the united testimony of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Apostle, Savior. So you come to Matthew 15. It's a big discussion going on. It would fit in a lot of churches today. It's a very contemporary discussion. There were some discussing with Jesus about his disciples. He said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Uh, this is not discussing hygiene. It's not about COVID. It's not about sanitation. This is that ritual uh, washing to get the, off the Gentile cooties of whoever handled your carrots at the market. Um, so you're gonna, you gotta wash your hands. You know, it was a ceremonial thing. In other words, why don't your, your disciples do the external things to be righteous? We love externals. Our hearts are drawn to them. I can do these 10 things and I can be good with God. We love externals. The human heart is drawn to them. So they have this big discussion. How come your disciples don't do the externals? And Jesus says, it's far worse than that. Well, 
That's the idea. So you come down to verse 18. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and I would say there's probably, at least in the minds of, of Jesus here, an ellipsis, meaning, and the list could go on. Jesus says, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In other words, you thought it was all about externals, didn't you? Oh, that it was. You just be a nicer person. There. You fixed it all up with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it isn't. The, the problem isn't that. It's not external. It's your heart. By nature, Paul would say. It's your heart. Why do you, why do you periodically speak critical words of others? Is it just a bad habit? No, it's because you have critical thoughts in your heart. That's the testimony of Scripture. Why do you judge other people inappropriately? Well, because your heart is. Your heart is critical of others. Why do you lie, steal, cheat, or whatever it is you do? Well, bad examples of other people, right? You watch the wrong TV show. Hmm. No, it's the human heart. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse says, I, the Lord, search the hearts. I know. Wow. So my final bullet point under this heading, almost done, almost ready for the good news, right? You can take a breath, almost, almost. The Bible does not present humanity as essentially good people who just need a little help or a moral boost from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Rather, we are rebels against God, thoroughly and fatally infected by sin. Every now and then around this um, church and in this pulpit, you will hear a term, it's a theological term, which we uh, pop in with every now and then and try to explain every time. It's the word total depravity. I believe in this doctrine. I think it's what Scripture teaches. I think that's what Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 is all about, total depravity. Now, what do we mean by that? I routinely say, because I, I want us to know this, total depravity as a doctrine does not mean that you're as bad as you could be. That's not the point. You could be much worse than you are. See, total depravity as a doctrine means that every part of your being is affected and infected by sin, mind, will, and emotions. That, that's what it means. And ultimately, like Ephesians 2, 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. If God does not act, there you will sit. So total depravity, as one writer says in a sentence, total depravity is not just badness, but blindness. I would add willful blindness. Blindness to beauty, the beauty of God, and deadness to true joy. Okay, these are interesting things to think about. Now, with that as a backdrop, I come back then to Ephesians 2, and I want to begin reading at verse 4, okay? And hopefully, in having grasped the first part, we can get the second part correct. So verse 4 then, down through verse 10, Paul says, but God, and that is a huge shift. It's a huge disjuncture. If the scripture ended at chapter 2, verse 3, we would be hopeless, but God, you see, and now he is described in his character, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved his motivation. Even when we were dead in our trans trespasses, what, he loved you because he knew you'd become a pretty darling person. No, actually not. That isn't it. No, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, you've been saved. Watch grace show up here. By grace, you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that purpose, your purpose expressed, so that in the coming ages, he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, I take that to mean the faith, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one, in other words, can say, I came to Christ because I am so amazingly smart. No, that isn't true. You're not that amazingly smart. No, you didn't come because you figured it out. You came because God so worked in your heart that he would draw you to himself in his great mercy. I believe that. We are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. What's the place of good works? After, for the purpose of good works. They follow salvation. They do not uh, purchase salvation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I have this under the heading, we have a savior. He is greater than you think. So not only we need saving, it's worse than you think. We have a savior. He is greater than you think. But God, rich in mercy, great in love. I say here on your notes, God loves to give what we need the most. And indeed, at the end of verse three, what you need the most is saving. The work of God, his action on your behalf. God loves to give what we need the most. By grace through faith, and I'm saying this is the best way to express the path of salvation, and if I may press for some precision for a moment, it is by God's grace. Grace has a source. It is sourced in God. By God's grace through faith, faith has an object. The correct object by which any person is made right with God is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Sometimes speak, people speak of faith kind of in a, in a amorphous, kind of a shapeless, kind of a pointless. That's a person with great faith. Well, let me tell you something. Great faith, apart from the correct object, does not send anyone to heaven. Right. See? Faith must have the right object. That is the work of Jesus on the cross in your behalf. This is not a 95%, 5% deal. In other words, 95% the work of God to kind of fix you up a little bit. 5% because you're pretty good. No, you have nothing with which to save any part of you. You do not bring to the gates of heaven 95% Jesus in your little bucket of righteousness. The prophet Isaiah speaks of that little bucket of righteousness and says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Put them down. It is 100% the work of Christ, 100% his righteousness that you need. You have none, see, apart from him. Utterly, completely broken before the merciful, gracious hand of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross, substitute for our sin, raised to new life, which... Paul refers to here, ascended to heaven, coming again. Trusting Christ and him alone. So the object of our faith is not just some willy-nilly, well, I have faith. I, mean, I, I have a lot of faith. as a, uh, Nonsense. If your faith is not rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you may have all kinds of cool faith in the world and be headed straight to a Christless eternity. No, trusting Christ and him alone as your savior from sin. Now, I look with you at the text again. God is described, and I want to I just press through, uh, starting at verse four again. I want you to see how God is described, and I want you to see the actions that he has taken on your behalf if you've known Christ as your savior. God, rich in mercy, a God of great love, which is focused in our direction, the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, as Romans 5, 8 as well, of course. Here are things God has done. He made us alive together with Christ. When you trust Christ is your savior, that same life that raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection life flows through you by the person of the spirit of God. By grace, you've been saved. Raised us up with him. This is not referring to resurrection as in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not referring to that first resurrection. This is referring to the resurrection of Jesus, of which you are a part when you trust Christ as your savior. It is as though he, when he died on the cross, you died on the cross. When he raised, was raised from the dead, it's as though you were raised from the dead. And further, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where is he right now? Seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if you know Christ is your savior, it's saying it is that sure that one day you will be there with him 
In a sense, you're already there. Theologians use the phrase the already and the not yet. That's a whole day in seminary. Uh, But it's that kind of a principle. Christ is there already, and it's like there's a chair right next to him with your name on it. Kind of like that. That's sure that you will one day be there. He raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And verse 7, amazing and overlooked verse. How long will it take you to see the joy and the beauty of heaven? Sometimes people get the idea, I think, that 30 seconds into heaven, they kind of look around and go, okay, I've got this. You want to bet? No, it says, it says it'll take the coming ages so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. It will take ages for you to see and experience the full pleasure of God because you are in Christ. It'll take the coming ages, not 30 seconds, not five minutes. In the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. You heard my comments on that. This is not your own doing. This is the work of God. Verse 10, one comment, and we'll head toward a a wrap up. We are his workmanship. I put in your sermon notes, we are God's masterpiece. The term could be translated that way. Um, It refers to a work of art, not in your own self apart from Christ, but as you know Christ as your savior, you become a work of art for God. Isn't that amazing? The handiwork of God. Some of your artists, you know the effort it takes to make something beautiful. So if you thought the first three verses were about, well, we're just all scum, get over it. Well, no, actually here, once you know Christ is your Savior, you become a work of art with Christ. Christ is the one doing this great work in your life to redeem and to reshape and to reform. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, indeed. God's pleasure in doing so. I'm giving you several things under response. One quick story and we'll let you go. All glory belongs to God. The day you step into heaven, you will be singing the praises of God who saved you. You will not look in some big heavenly mirror and say, boy, I'm good. I'm glad I I was good enough to earn this. You You didn't earn any of it at all. No, surely by grace, received through faith, faith in the right object. No, we who trust Christ have peace with God, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And a couple of questions there. Do you minimize sin? Do you take Jesus for granted? I I close with one little story that I think is very revealing of our need and of God's solution. I want to read just just a small portion, just a sentence or two from from Confessions of St. Augustine. Um, uh, this goes back to the mid-300s. And there's, he tells a story. It, it, this, this book is the story of him coming to faith. He, by his own admission, was at one point, boy, uh, a slave to all kinds of sin, things that are as old as mankind, and he was a slave to them, a slave to pleasure, uh, a slave to seeking his own way, chasing all kinds of false religions and living a life that none of you would choose for your children, frankly. Um, but he tells a story of one day, he and some other, he, he describes them as um, very bad youngsters. Well, he's hanging out with them. But he, he, tells a, he tells a story about stealing things, not because he was hungry or because he needed it, but simply because he wanted to steal for the joy of stealing. Think there's no pleasure in sin? Maybe you haven't lived much. So he, he says this, in a garden nearby to our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruit that was desirable, neither in appearance nor in taste. In other words, a lot of pears, and they weren't very good ones. They didn't taste good. They didn't look good. In fact, he had better ones at home. Further, he wasn't hungry. So he said, late one night, a group of very bad youngsters set out to shake down and rob this tree. We took great loads of fruit from it, not for our own eating, but rather to throw it to the pigs even if we did eat a little bit. We did this to do what pleased us for the reason that it was forbidden. And that's the easier example. There are others I could read. The pleasure of doing what is forbidden. 
until the day that by a miracle of God's grace, through the word of God applied by the spirit of God, he, his eyes were opened spiritually and he came to faith. Delivered from those appetites from before, gloriously born again. He would say, God did it, every bit of it. I, the grateful one. Here's, here's what I would say. If, if today you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, never forget from what you were saved. Never forget. Never forget the penalty for your sin that you deserve, that I deserve, that Christ alone paid. Never forget. Not so that you'll live in that past, but so that you will glory in your Savior. See, sometimes people ask, my, my, my faith isn't real strong. My faith isn't real alive. My faith isn't very warm. And sometimes I wonder, it's because you skipped over the first part. You don't value Jesus much because you don't think you were saved from much. Never forget. And I would say this to you as well. If you are listening online or you're here in this room and you're mulling over issues of faith and you've never come to the place of saying, today, today, I want to trust Christ and him alone as my savior from sin. I would say to you in the room or anywhere else, what in the world are you waiting for? Why would you not come? Why would you not acknowledge before God your need for a savior and your trust that Jesus, his death on the cross alone is what has provided salvation for you? Why would you not trust him? You can do that today. I want to pray. That would be a perfect time for you and your heart to respond to him. Would you stand with me, please? Our Father, thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to these things. And even as today, as a church family, we confess that we believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. Yes, in Christ alone, on the authority of scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Our Father, warm our hearts, we who know Jesus as our Savior, that we would, we would know the joy of salvation, gratefulness that we'll never outlive. And for those who might be mulling things, mulling things over today spiritually, oh God, would you in your grace and kindness draw them across the line, drag them across that line of faith even now, even today, that say today I'm trusting Christ and him alone is my Savior from sin. Make it so, our Father. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.